Hi readers, and welcome to Beth's Bookcast, a podcast for book lovers and a place to share new books, enjoy old favorites, and think about the reading life. I'm Beth Jordahl, your host, a lifelong reader and believer in the power of story. Thank you for joining me today. Now pour yourself a cup of something delicious, settle down in your favorite comfy seat, and let's talk about books. Welcome to the bookcast. I'm so excited to have you back. Last time we chatted about Jane Eyre and the Enneagram, and today we're talking about something totally different. We're talking about bittersweet Susan Cain, but welcome back to the bookcast. Thank you so much, Beth. I'm super excited to be here again. Yay. Um, so just to get started, would you mind telling us about yourself and what you do? And Yeah, so um, actually, I think we connected through Hope Writers. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Yep. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so we are both part of an online writing group called Hope Writers, which is um, a fantastic online community. And um, I'm, I've gotten since last time we spoke more involved there, which has been a lot of fun. And part of that has been because since um, our Jane Eyre podcast episode, that was so much fun. Um, I have left the publishing company that I was at for a long time as an acquisitions editor. And I started my own company. It's called Ariel Curry Editorial. And through that company, I am doing uh, ghostwriting book proposals. I'm coaching. I'm doing um, editing manuscripts and doing some group coaching as well and having so much fun. And I've been doing a lot more work with Hope Writers um, through all of that as well. Um, So that's been a big life update as Mm -hmm. of late. And um, yeah, you can, my website is arielcurry.com. Um, I will make sure to link that in the episode description notes as well. Perfect. Yeah. So it's fun, though, because you're still working a lot with authors and hopeful writers, and you're still very much in that world. Yeah. I mean, even more so, honestly, as an acquisitions editor, a lot of my job was really administrative, and Mm -hmm. I spent most of my time, you know, doing P&Ls and, uh, yeah, you know, just administrative data entry and things like that. And now I get to spend most of my time actually working with authors and doing the work that I love, which is encouraging mm-hmm. writers. So honestly, I have way more fun nowadays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, why don't you just tell us real quick, like, what does a what does a book coach do? Like, what do you do to help authors? So people, if they're interested, in it, can look you up. Yeah. So uh, I really enjoy when people come to me and they say, Hey, I have this idea for a book. Can you help me, you know, flesh this idea out, make it really marketable and then help me put together a plan for writing a book. Um, so a lot of the coaching that I do is kind of at the very beginning of the process when people are still figuring out how do I want to publish? Is this even a good idea? How do I make an outline? All of that. So Um, We talk a lot about, you know, who is your audience? Who are you writing this book for? What's the best genre that fits what you're hoping to do? Is it memoir? Is it self-help or personal development? Is it more of a narrative nonfiction book? Um, So we talk kind of through all of the um, decisions that you have to make as an author. And I like to um, think of it as kind of putting fences around your book. You kind of have to decide what your book is going to be and what your book is not going to be. And honestly, those are hard decisions to make for a lot of first-time authors. And so having someone 
who has a lot of experience in the publishing industry, who kind of knows the market dynamics, who really understands the book publishing process, um, can help authors make those decisions and kind of guide them to what's going to work best for them in the long term. So that's what I really enjoy. I love that. <clears throat> that's amazing. So if anyone listening, and I know several of my listeners are hopeful writers <laughs> and aspiring authors, so make sure you reach out to Ariel because that sounds like exactly what people need when they're getting started. <clears throat> okay, so today we're actually talking about Bittersweet by Susan Kane, and she actually wrote only one other book before this, right? She wrote Quiet, yes. um, which was how introverts oh I forget the tagline but it was about introverts in a world that won't stop talking essentially right yes yeah I think it's the power of introverts in a world that won't stop talking something okay. like that yeah <laughs> so she so she writes about topics that are very um kind of just slightly off right like not mainstream topics at least from my Renee Brown is kind of the same way. She picks topics that maybe we don't talk about at the dinner table or with our friends. Yeah, I think that's so right. And what I love about Susan Cain, too, is that she spends so much time researching a topic and really exploring it all the way before she starts writing about it. Um, I heard an interview that she did about this book, and she said that she spent like 10 years researching this book and you know pondering it really turning it over in her mind before she even knew what the book was going to be really um and a lot of it is you know her personal experiences and um that was the same way with quiet and why quiet was such a big phenomenon was because she does such in-depth research and beth you and i were just saying i hope we remember all yeah. of the things i want to say about this book because it's so there's just so much detail here. I mean, you can tell when you read it, she's thought of everything you could possibly want to know about this topic. I set out to write about, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was like the reason we all love sad music. Like that's where yeah. she started. Yeah. And I honestly, that starting point was what really drew me to this book too, because mm -hmm. I love sad music. <laughs> and yeah. I movies and I had never stopped to ask myself well if the goal of life supposedly is to be happy all the time why am I drawn to these sad things I I thought it was so brilliant that she started with that question I thought hey wait a minute yeah I, I want to know the answer to that <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and it's fun too because she actually has like a little bittersweet quiz on her website that you can take um, or yes. it's in the book. Maybe it's in the book. And she goes through, like, do you do all of these things? And it's fun to see, like, I'm not, uh, let's see, here it is. Do you tear up easily at touch TV commercials? Are you especially moved by old photographs? Do you really to music, art, or nature? Have others described you as an old soul? And do you find comfort or inspiration on a rainy day? <laughs> and oh, yeah. all of those things are not inherently uh, happy or joyful. Right, right. And it's counter to what we um, are often told in society um, is, you know, kind of the, the goal of our lives. So people say is to be happy, right? Well, mm -hmm. if that's the case, then why would we willingly choose to be sad through our art? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
sadness is longing. Sadness mm -hmm. is this feeling of, she kind of paints a picture of like a cup being empty and waiting to be filled. It's this, you know, inherently, uh, inherently desirous state that we all can identify with. And because it's something that we can all identify with, it's inherently unifying and connecting. And she even talks about how like the word compassion means to suffer together. And mm -hmm. so you, you know, compassion we think of as a very um, positive emotion, but it actually means to like share in someone's suffering, which is not exactly what we think of, but sadness is something that brings people together. And I think we see this, um, you know, in times of war for sure. Um, mm -hmm. My husband is over in Ukraine working with um, a nonprofit and he sent me pictures of a mall in Zaporizhia that had mm -hmm. been destroyed by the bombing in May. And then he sent me all these pictures of all of the volunteers who were coming together to provide food and medical supplies mm -hmm. and serve all of the refugees in that area of Ukraine. And it, I was thinking of it in relation to this book of how when we see things that are quite bitter and painful, like war, like destruction, like senseless evil in the world, we also see that is something that brings people together to not that it was meant to bring people together, not that we want those happen to bring people together, but when those things happen, we can still find goodness by coming together. I think that's the, that's the power of the bitterness is that out of that bitterness, you can still find sweetness. So the fact that sadness and unity or sadness leads to unity, I think is definitely something that we see in times of war. And it reminds me of, I think it was um, Fred Rogers who said, mm -hmm. whenever you see, you know, destruction or war, I forget exactly what the quote is, but look for the helpers. Mm -hmm. And you definitely see that um, for sure. And I, I think this book is particularly meaningful right now because right now we are in such a hard time of society. You know, we've got mm -hmm. so much, um, so much sadness <laughs> that mm -hmm. we're dealing with, you know, there's just record amounts of anxiety and depression right now. Um, there's a lot of more awareness of mental health issues, which is really great, but a lot of us are still trying to figure out how do we how do we just live with so much sadness? It's not necessarily that there's a mental health issue necessarily because it's not, um, you know, it's not bad to feel sadness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's still not a comfortable feeling. And I think what part of what is making, you know, what makes this book so um, timely is that all of us are kind of grappling with a new level of sadness as mm -hmm. a generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because I've seen multiple TikToks recently of people just saying like, does anyone else feel like everything is just heavier now post pandemic? Or does everyone feel does anyone feel like it's harder to be happier post pandemic, right? It's hard to get to that place of 
being excited about something or and I think you know with the war in Ukraine we saw uh, it was a surge but it was a surge of people posting on social media and praying all together and then now it continuing you know you still see those people holding out hope or with just the world and the state that it is and people putting it out there it's interesting right because you said it doesn't necessarily mean that the mental health crisis is greater we're all just more aware of it and in that we cry out for help and there's more places for our voices to be heard for our story to be heard across social media platforms and all of that yes yeah and i loved um that in the book Susan Cain talks about James Pennebaker's research mm -hmm. at that point, but um, Pennebaker was a researcher who did a lot of pioneering work around the impact of writing. So obviously I really perked up at mm -hmm. <laughs> that research and, and I actually knew about it before reading this book. I had read a couple of his studies. Um, mm -hmm. What makes his work so interesting is that he has found and he's demonstrated this many times through his studies that people who write about things that are really meaningful to them, writing about you know their troubles, writing about um, the things that make them sad, those people actually have much greater emotional resilience for a longer period of time. And there's even health um, benefits to doing that kind of writing. Like um, he found that with one study in particular, um, the people who spent time writing for just four days, it was only four days where they yeah. wrote 20 minutes and up to six months later, that group of people had to go to the doctor less than the mm -hmm. who didn't do that writing, which is so cool to think about. I mean, obviously that's just one study, but he's shown it again and again throughout his, his work. Um, and it also matters what you're writing about. It's right. not just writing about like, he, I think in one study, he's had people like write about their shoes or something. And <laughs> those people didn't experience the same kinds of benefits as the people who actually wrote about their sadness and wrote about the trauma that they had experienced. And um, the people who did do uh, that kind of more emotional writing saw significant benefits for a much longer period of time in their lives. That's so interesting because it, it ties into morning pages, right? Yeah. Is, is the Julia Cameron um, habit that you form, right? As an author, you're supposed to form as an author is her <laughs> suggestion. And you wake up in the morning and you write without editing yourself, right? You just let whatever is inside of you pour out and bubble up and just like three pages, right? And so three pages, depending on obviously the size of your handwriting, but it could take you you know, about 20 minutes, right? Which is what you said the study was. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because um, Julia Cameron talks about kind of the, the one and a half page mark being like, yeah. that's where, that's where the magic starts to happen is like the first one and a half pages, you are just talking about your shoes. You're just mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm tired. I haven't had my coffee yet. I didn't sleep well, blah, blah, blah. Get all my complaints out. And then somewhere around one and a half pages, you start to think a little deeper. Your brain mm -hmm. is up and that's when you can really start kind of accessing your deeper emotions. And so I love that Julia Cameron kind of reminds us like, don't give up, <laughs> don't give up in the first like page and a half. And I, 
I need that reminder often because so many times I start writing and I'm like, this is pointless. Right. <laughs> but I know what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> but I know the magic is happening. It's going to mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of it too, is you're not even supposed to read it back. Right. So it's not, you can at some point, I think in the artist's way, she does tell you to go back and read, but like the point of it, you're not writing your next novel. You're not writing your grocery list. Right. It's just supposed to be those feelings. And that's kind of what his study was about. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I loved that in this book too. There was so much about the relationship between um, sadness and bittersweetness and art Mm -hmm. and creativity. That Mm -hmm. was one of the most, you know, impactful pieces of the book for me. And it had me thinking about how longing itself that, you know, desiring something is one of the fundamental prerequisites for a story. And I teach this all the time in my coaching. You know, I teach the hero's journey. There's a hero, the hero wants something. There's that fundamental longing. And so you could say at the beginning of every story, you know, if you're using Susan Cain's definition, mm-hmm. every story starts with a hero who is sad. <laughs> yeah. Sad in some way, you know, they could be expressing it in a, a lot of different ways, maybe as anger or fear or whatever. Um, but ultimately what that, that prerequisite for a story starts with a hero who wants something and that wanting is what motivates them to go on the hero's journey to get whatever it is that they desire. That's so interesting. Cause that, it, it feels similar to that C.S. Lewis quote that she uses as well. I think, right. If I long for something that I cannot find in this world, right. Then there must mean that there's something more. Yes. Something beyond. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I thought it was so interesting. The story of Pixar's, uh, Pixar's movie inside yes. out. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she talks about how, I think it's the the director, the writer, um, he considers having fear as the main kind of the main of, of Riley's emotions, uh, to mm-hmm. focus on, but something was just missing when he tried it doing that way. And mm-hmm. after a lot of, you know, figuring it out, he decided to center sadness as the kind of the primary emotion that Mm -hmm. Riley has as she's like going through all these changes in her lives. And he was really worried that that wouldn't go over well, Mm -hmm. but it went really well. Inside Out, one of the most successful movies Pixar has ever had, because again, we all know what it's like to be sad and we all can relate to this longing that we have inside of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because in Pixar, right, some of the memories that are yellow for joy, right, yeah. mix with the blue of sadness. And right there you have your your bittersweet. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, she talks about how bittersweetness. I, I love this. It's grappling simultaneously with darkness and light. So that mix mm-hmm. that you were talking about. And she says, it's not that pain equals art. It's that creativity has the power to look pain in the eye and to decide to turn it into something better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because you see a lot of authors, a lot of musicians, a lot of artists who do grapple with that, right? Who grapple with the pain of what happened in their life or the pain that they see around them. 
<clears throat> and then they channel it into something. And even in this book, I feel like she did that as well, because throughout the book, she writes about her own experiences, like her um, experiences with her mother or losing her father, like all of these different life experiences that drove her to a better understanding of what it's like to live um, almost in that bittersweet place, or at least living comfortably with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's something, that's a discussion that I have often with my memoir authors, you know, clients of mine who are writing memoirs. Sometimes they come to me and they say like, well, no one's going to want to read my story because it doesn't have a happy ending. Or like, how do I end the book when it's not happy? Yeah. <laughs> and I often say to them, you know, we in all of the unhappy things of our in our lives don't just go away. What matters is that we learn how to cope with them in a new way, or we learn how to find peace regardless of the unhappy things that happen in our lives. We learn to make joy for mm -hmm. ourselves instead of just expecting all of our problems to magically disappear. And so when you're writing a memoir, whatever problem you're facing throughout the book doesn't need to magically be resolved by the end of the book. All that needs to happen by the end of the book is that you change as a person and that you figure out how to make art or make goodness come out of that pain and that sadness. That's mm -hmm. when the book will feel like it's ready to be done. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's so interesting. <clears throat> I think I I think part of the reason like uh, like I said before we started talking but I feel like I need to sit with this book and digest it and then, and then go back and read it again. Because oh yeah. All of that is so like it's this little tiny details of how you're looking at your life or how you're processing your grief or how you're processing even a bad day. You know, even having a bad day sometimes and being like, "Wow, is this am I doing the right thing? Do I need to rechange my life or do I need to just switch directions? And then just being like, okay, okay, no, this is just my response to the lack of like almost the, almost the lack of perfection around us. Right. And she said in the book that in America specifically, but Western culture in general, we tend to associate happiness and joy with winners and sadness, sorrow, and grief with losers, right? Mm -hmm. And that can impact so deeply how we, how I think I look at moments in my life or um, the way a day goes even. You know, if it's a bad day, then I'm like, oh, I've lost today. But why, why are those two things so um, uh, intricately linked? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point for sure. Um, and I definitely see that you know, in my own life and that, you know, the things that we all have to deal with, there's mm -hmm. no, oftentimes there are no easy resolutions and the bad things in our lives are things that we have to just sit with and learn how to deal with, um, unfortunately. But I love what, you know, what she's saying is that it doesn't mean that that pain can't be transformed. Yeah. I, I was looking at, you know, the things that she recommends doing are not exactly easy. <laughs> no. You know, the place that you suffer is the place that you care. And so to 
to make sense of the pain, you actually have to lean into it. She says the best response to pain is to dive deeper into your caring, which is exactly the opposite of most of us want to do. We want mm -hmm. pain to ward off the bitter by not caring so much about the sweet, but we have to remind ourselves of the sweetness that's possible um, in order to make sense of that pain. Yeah. And I feel like um, kind of near, kind of near the end, right? She talks about, yeah, it's the coda. She talks about how her and her husband both came from very different experiences, but they both longed for something that they couldn't find around them. And so then their grief and their longing both transformed into the life that they live and the decisions that they've made. And so it doesn't even have to be like in her example, right? She clearly turned it into books. Um, but when you're creating something out of the pain and suffering, it doesn't have to be a huge work of art either. It can just be the decisions in the life that you're leading or how you interact with your friends and family. Yeah. And she even says at one point in the book, you don't even have to make something, you know, you don't have mm -hmm. to become a painter or a writer or an artist or a musician or whatever, just being around other people who are doing those things or just going to a museum and witnessing how someone else transformed their pain into art can be healing for people. Mm -hmm. um, and she quoted another study about how, again, lots of health benefits for people who just go and observe um, or, or, you know, go to a concert, go to a symphony, something like that. Um, there's so much that we have to learn and to, uh, to be comforted by when we just witness other people doing the same thing that we're trying to do. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, that story, um, about the violinist who sits down yes. in the war torn area and starts playing. Right. And everyone just kind of watches and observes and listens because he's so heartbroken but also hopeful at the same time right that's in here too yeah. I just am having trouble finding it <laughs> yeah it's the cellist of Sarah Vejo it's the very beginning of the book mm -hmm. okay there you go that's yeah funny. I know I was really touched by that story mm -hmm. it reminds mm -hmm. me of the movie The Pianist um, yeah. with Adrian Brody where he plays the Polish um, Polish pianist, which I think, again, that kind of a movie just goes to show it's, it's so beautiful to us and admirable and brave when we see people taking situations that just don't make sense and there's no, mm -hmm. no good in them and finding a way to, uh, finding that goodness anyways. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, like you mentioned, your, your husband went to Ukraine and, and has been volunteering and all that. So, um, how do you feel like this book can impact all of that and where we're at right now and with the war and with life just kind of being a little bit harder these years and how can this book help and impact all of that? Do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, 
in some ways, you know, it is so sad and it's it's hard. I try not to read the news about what's going on in Ukraine. And he's <laughs> my husband's just like, do not look at the, you know, these stories that are coming out. Yeah. Um, but it's also really encouraging to see like this is the most passionate I've ever seen. His name is Josh. This is the most passionate passionate I've ever seen Josh about work that he's doing. You know, he's had obviously he's got, you know, job and like he has work that he does when he's home, but mm -hmm. he's never been this excited and passionate about anything that he's done. And he's told me recently, you know, he feels like this is the best work that he's ever done in his life. Mm -hmm. And that is so motivating to me. It's hard, obviously, to know that he's in a this area that's really dangerous and I yeah. know there's bad things going on that I don't want to know about. <laughs> yeah. But it's also really um, gratifying for me to see that he knows he's making a big difference. He's so passionate about it and so happy that he's there, even though he's exhausted and he's working around the clock, um, you know, to help people. Yeah. That in itself gives people meaning and that makes mm -hmm feel like his life is really meaningful in a way that, you know, it's never been before. Not that his life didn't have meaning, but this is a whole new experience for him. And it's really, um, it's really incredible to see that change in him too. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. She kind of talks about that a little bit, right? That you can find your purpose <clears throat> in those moments of bittersweet, whether, whether it's something like a war in Ukraine or, even just an experience you've had and then turning that into what you've decided to do, like, you know, um, victims becoming counselors or yeah. children who went hungry becoming volunteers at a soup kitchen, right? Like you can turn your pain into something <clears throat> that gives you purpose. Yeah, exactly. And I, I really appreciate the way that she, uh, talked about that because you know so often we hear everything happens for a reason mm -hmm. and susan kane is not <laughs> not saying mm -hmm. that at all she's not saying mm -hmm. that pain happens so that we can do these good things but we do these good things because we are motivated to and driven by our longing to make the world a better place and um i don't know if you know the book by kate bowler it's it's called everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. <laughs> um, oh, that's, that's a great title. <laughs> it's a fantastic title and it's a fantastic book. And so Kate Bowler is, um, she has cancer and mm -hmm. it's a chronic thing that she lives with, um, every day, you know, for years now. And her book is all about the, the false prosperity gospel, um, mm -hmm. and how people often say things like, Oh, everything happens for a reason when something bad happens and mm -hmm. she's saying, no, that's not true. <laughs> yeah. you know, I didn't get cancer mm -hmm. for a reason. It doesn't make my life better that I have cancer. It undeniably makes my life worse. However, yeah. Kate Bowler is still able to find the sweetness in a very bitter experience. And like you said, use her pain to impact other people and use her pain to find purpose and bring hope and joy to other people who are going through similar situations. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I know. Um, 
I've always hated that saying because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, but, but that doesn't, that saying doesn't make sense for someone who's lived through hell, right? Like that saying doesn't make sense. How can that be good? How, you know, everything happening for a reason seems so off instead of saying, listen, yes, you survived that. It was horrible. Now what? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I see this, um, you know, for myself too, I don't know if you've seen this, but you know, we've been dealing with a few years now, um, with infertility mm -hmm. and going through IVF and so far it hasn't been successful and it, I've had to have this conversation with myself a lot of like, okay, well, I always thought I was going to be a mom and maybe mm -hmm. I will, you know, there's still hope. I haven't stopped trying or anything. Yeah. You know, we still have a ways to go before we do stop trying, but it has made me consider like, okay, well, if I am not a mom, if that's not part of my identity, like I thought it was going to be, where am I going to find identity in my life? And where am I going to find purpose? And mm -hmm. I am already resolved. And actually this book really helped me have that mm -hmm. conversation with myself to say, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet, but I do know that there are ways to find beauty and to find goodness, to find that sweetness in, you know, a very bitter experience right now. It's a little easier for me to talk about some days. It's not so easy mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. and to see the possibilities, but I do know that they are there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's um, interesting in the book. I, in the book near the end, I think she uses the phrase like turn to beauty. Like yeah. even when you're feeling pain or sadness or sorrow, how can you turn towards beauty? Not taking yourself out of the pain or out of the grief or out of the sadness, but instead kind of embracing what is around you almost. And I think it's amazing to see how people do that, you know, whatever their struggles may be. Yes. I know, I, you know, I know people who are grieving right now and it's been really admirable um, and just, I, you know, inspiring to watch how they are leaning into the grief and kind of letting it be what it is. And like you said, not trying to escape it or ignore it or pretend like it's not there, but sit with it and mm -hmm. turn towards the beauty in their lives. And it's, it's really about kind of you know, enlarging your experience of life. You, you have to make room for this new experience of grief and sadness that may or may not go away at some point, but you also have to learn how to kind of let that be there and make room for beauty in a, in addition to that. And that's so hard to do. Um, but I love that. I, I think on social media um, and just within uh, friendships and things, I'm seeing so many more examples of people who are doing that in a really beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I can think of even a couple of creators just sharing events that are happening in their lives when it was infertility and sharing how she coped with that and how she grew through that and sharing even just sharing the pain of it. And then another sharing like the loss of a parent and sharing what that looks like. Um, even if you didn't have a good relationship with that parent. And I think, and this goes back to like my love of literature and stories, but I think 
watching someone else's story, like hearing them share their story, hearing their, their story can be so impactful when you're living through it. Right. It means, Oh, I'm not alone. Oh, someone else has done this before. Um, <clears throat> and I think, isn't that C.S. Lewis's definition of friendship actually, where he says it's looking at someone and saying, Oh, I'm not alone. Yeah. Um, but just the ability to do that on social media is huge. You know, your story, you don't have to go find a publisher. You don't have to write a whole novel. You can just write a post or make a video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the good part about social media. I think people, um, you know, and, and rightfully so when we kind of doom scroll on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, mm-hmm. we can get super overwhelmed with all of the negative things that are happening in the world. But there's also a lot of really good things that are happening that people are posting online. So I think at one point in the book, she actually talks about how she like stopped following a bunch of news accounts and she started following all of these art accounts. And so when she turned on her feed, it was just full of like beautiful pictures that she could look at and it totally changed the way that she used social media. So that's a fantastic, really practical tip that we can take away. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I know. I tell people all the time, like if an account is bothering you or stressing you or giving you anxiety, like unfollow. It's your feed. You're allowed to do that. And then follow accounts that do inspire you. I love that. It's interesting too, because I think the, the happy culture impacts that, right? Yes. um, Everyone posting their, oh, what's the word? Highlights reel. There you go. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I know it's true. And even sometimes like people's, uh, you know, behind the scenes accounts feel kind of fake. <laughs> like yeah. sometimes I'm like, okay, you didn't really wake up with your messy hair, not beautiful, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you really appreciate that there is. And I think I see this more on TikTok, you know, Instagram feels a lot more curated to me. Oh, for sure. I'm really enjoying lately what I think really is authenticity on TikTok a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I think um, TikTok as a platform mostly prefers your authentic self, right? They don't want you to wear, you know, a crazy filter that makes you look hyper, you know, edited. They would prefer you in your own life, sharing your own examples. Um, But what's interesting is that the new platform that's out kind of for Gen Z is called be real Hmm. and you have two minutes to go in and take a photo of exactly where you are right now and it takes two photos at the same time so it takes a photo of what's in front of you and it takes a selfie so both at the same time so that you legitimately have to you know be real about exactly where you are you know you don't have time to go edit you don't have any of that you have two minutes to take it and post it and so it's fascinating that that is the next social media platform for me. That's just fascinating. Yeah, that's really, I had not heard of that, but that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what its growth pattern will look like. Like, I don't know if it'll end up being TikTok big or Instagram big or anything like that. But just that that in and of itself is the next iteration of what people are looking at is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So, um, just kind of as like a, you know, what, you know, obviously like 
you're now a book editor and all of that, but what's kind of, what's next for you? What are you working on? What's in the works for you? Oh, um, so my friend and I are actually writing a book. Yay! <laughs> it's, uh, it's about book planning. Uh, so very, you know, very on brand for mm -hmm. both of us. My friend is a ghost writer and we do a lot of work together. And so just over um, about a year, we've been, you know, realizing we have so much in common and really think similarly about how we do things. Um, and so we decided to do this project together and that's been a lot of fun. Um, I'm also doing a group coaching called Finish Your First Draft, which um, I'm partnering with Jeff Goines on that. So that's happening right now, but we're probably going to be opening up the next cohort, um, signups for the next cohort in October. And that next cohort will probably start in January. So awesome. those are the next, next big things for me. That's awesome. That's so cool. Well, when your book is done, you'll have to come back and we could talk about your book. That'll be so yeah. fun. Oh, I would love that. That'd be great. Full circle. Okay. <laughs> and then obviously, like I've asked you this question before, um, so you can stick with your same answer or change it, but what's your favorite book right now? Um, well, you know, my favorite book is always Jane Eyre. It really yes. is. <laughs> um, and I honestly can't remember if I, what I said last time, but I think the other one that I would add to that answer is The Dove Keepers uh, by mm -hmm. Alice Hoffman. It's my favorite, um, more modern historical fiction book. It's about the uh, the last Jewish stronghold against the Romans in Masada. Wow. Yeah, it's set in like AD 72 or something like that. Um, wow. So... Yeah, you know, after the temple has fallen in Jerusalem, and this is the last fortress of Jews who kind of um, are are holding out against the Romans. And I'm not spoiling anything for you by saying this. It's it becomes a mass suicide. Um, uh -huh. However, there are some survivors, and so I won't give any more details than that. But people should definitely read it because it's a fantastic book, so well written. Um, very historically accurate. That's another book that Alice okay. has said she took like, you know, over 10 years to research and write. Um, wow. And it's, it really pays off. It's such an incredible story. Okay. That's so cool. Well, I'll add it to my list for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? How some books just seem to require more time and other books seem like, you know, they write them faster. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you see that all the time. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, to, you know, honestly, most people don't want to write books that take that long. <laughs> yeah. Most authors are not interested in doing that much work for a book. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I think when, when you see it, that's what makes it all the more amazing and incredible and often, you know, a much better reading experience too. Fascinating. Yeah. Cool. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on the bookcast today and talking about Bittersweet. It was so fun. Yeah, thank you, Beth, for having me. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Beth's bookcast. I have loved chatting about books with you today. Now, if you loved this, make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you want even more bookish content, book reviews, book activities, book questions, and more, check out my Patreon. The link is in the bio. Thank you so much again, and I look forward to talking to you next time.
Until then, happy reading.